Hello and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, the podcast with another cinema. I'm your host, Elliot, joined as always by Tom, Yuko and Kiliko. This episode, we delve deep across time and space in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Just how true has Kubrick's 1968 depictions of the future become? Should we seek answers to the questions of this film? And is the Stargate sequence even that fun on LSD? Here's our hosts to discuss all. Today we're skipping the cold open for a variety of reasons, but also mostly because maybe this is one of those films that doesn't necessarily need a cold open. I mean, who doesn't know about 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick? However, it might be good to know why exactly we're talking about this film in this episode. And Tom, it is very much related to Love 111. So why are we discussing this film today, Tom? Uh, well, because we are still building a new screening room and it's almost finished. And the interior of the screening room is going to be a reference to the inside of Hell 9000. So we'll get into this later on, but at the end of the film, when um, the astronaut tries to turn off um, Hell, there's this red room with all these sort of cassettes that here Delilah needs to take out for Hell to actually turn off. And when we were uh, looking for something special to do with that room, just to turn it into something more special than just your run-of-the-mill red velvet seats screening room. We wanted to do something that really sort of pulled you in in this, I don't know, this very cinephile sort of way. So we went for an interior design that that sort of echoes that room. So the both the carpeting and there's going to be a really neat LED system on the side of the of the room gives you this feeling that you're yeah you're inside of Hell 9000 and we're still also looking at bringing that eye in so you have his eye like that red thing somewhere that's looking at you we made we made this little joke <laughs> that when you walk in you have hell constantly saying i'm afraid dave <laughs> it would be very funny if you're playing DCPs, you know, the digital cinema files, right. and the server is crashing and you're not able to show <laughs> the films in the hell. Yeah. I'm afraid I cannot do, do that. that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Which is what often happens. I mean, I was recently at the Berlinale, the Berlin Film Festival, and the opening night, the first film screened for an audience at the Berlinale, had a DCP error mm-hmm. <laughs> and they had to like postpone the screening for almost 30 minutes. So, you know, it happens to the best yeah, of us. It yeah, would yeah. be very funny if it happens I'll, very often in love. I'll never forget the Dutch premiere of Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. And we were all sitting there nicely dressed up in Pate Tushinsky, this beautiful screening Everybody room. dressed like nuns. And Everybody. <laughs> 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 they were screening the film in the wrong format. So the... <laughs> So there were like curtains on the side were not yeah. open. So it was like a scope movie, like letterbox projecting over that beautiful screen and nobody could fix it. So for like, I think 15 minutes, we were looking at this horribly projected movie. And then Paul Verhoeven himself came in and said, um, I'm sorry, people, uh, this sometimes happens, uh, but uh, just give it a moment and uh, then we'll continue. And I was like, oh my God. Wow, that the humbleness that you made this film and screen it to your own audience, and of course the sort of controversial way that he left Holland after being too controversial. 
chandelier, yeah. blah, blah. I'm like, wow. So, yeah. And maybe, in her, indeed, it's better to have hell say, I'm afraid I cannot do that, Dave. <laughs> and are you also screening 2001? In of the... course, yeah. And I, what I love about it is that the screen that we have there is really wide. So it's not the biggest screening room, but I think that probably seeing the movie there, uh, hopefully mid-April, is going to be this incredible sort of immersive experience of both the movie and the environment that you're in mm -hmm. completely making sense. Mm, that's interesting. We could save that for later. But for the purpose of, you know, you having your own 2001 cosplay cinema room <laughs> <laughs> and, and that you're screening 2001 in Lab 111, we also saw, again, hmm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I think a major question to both of you would be, 2001, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Does it still hold up? <laughs> Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. Yeah. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. It's been a while since I last seen it, and watching it now, I realized that I saw it in its entirety like a long time ago. And then I constantly saw like parts of it. And then putting those parts together, you've seen it again, I guess. Yeah. But now I saw it like it's in, in its entirety and it's very different than when you just see that one scene or that other scene or the, the apes finding the tools and making the tools into, uh, into tools of war and spaceships. So yeah, it's definitely like... And this is, might be a, an open door, an open pod bay door. But like all great movies, it changes every time you see it when you get older. Like the sort of almost glacial pacing of the entire film, which probably annoyed me more when I was younger. Now felt like, yeah, like great. I loved it. Great meditative cinema. Hugo and I, we talked about vibey movies a lot. We, we talk about vibey movies a lot on this podcast. It's a vibey movie. Yeah. In a very different way than Licorice Pizza, which we discussed on last episode, of course. But It's like when we talked about the comfort movies that we watch. And I guess that right. with 2001, maybe if you keep seeing it in different stages of your life, you can kind of anticipate how the film is developing in front of your eyes and you can already anticipate what is happening and you get a lot of pleasure and comfort out of it 
exactly because it has the glacial pace that you're describing mm -hmm. and it just gets you to those places that you know it's going to bring you. And maybe that just brings a lot of joy and comfort for whoever likes to see that. But here you go. I think for you, that's, this must be intensified because if I remember correctly, this is one of the films that your mom used to show you already from a very young age onwards yeah. and is one of those films that you watch intermittently once every couple of years with your mom, right? Yeah, that's true. I'm just a little confused because you just said that the film is meditative for you, which I don't understand at all. Is it oppressive for you? Because I could see that. I feel Absolutely, like it's, it's constantly giving me a lot of great things, but really slapping them in my face rather mm. than bringing me there through contemplation. Mm. It's not very relaxing, I would say, either, which mm. maybe is something I... I agree that it's like, it is a film of grand gestures and it slaps you in the face. I guess that I'm saying more that you already are so familiar with the material that you're about uh -huh. to be yeah, faced maybe with. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. You already know how to slot it in almost. Um, it's like the processing already happens before the scene is playing and then you get what's happening. Mm -hmm. It's like a pop song that you've listened to thousands of times over. That's a great comparison. You can kind of really anticipate those little gaps and things and nooks and corners of the songs and the melodies and the structure and the rhythm and that gives you the pleasure of listening to it time and time again yeah, yeah, but that's yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. what also happens with the film but how yeah. was that process for you seeing it again then well as you said earlier i think i've mentioned this in one of our first episodes i think it's the nostalgia episode where i'm gonna tell the story again my mom uh, showed me the film for the first time when i was five mm. and made it very clear to me that she had the plan to watch this film with me for every coming five years so i would watch it every once every five years, um, which in during my childhood, I always did together with my mom. And then afterwards, I sort of took the responsibility to continue this ritual of um, watching the film. And it, it's so cool. <laughs> I still find it so cool. Even though the existence, I still, I still think that we need to talk with your mother about that. Yeah, but, we really do. Yeah. And I think it, it's also a lot of pressure to put on your child because now... Mm -hmm. I watched it yesterday and then I couldn't stop thinking about, because maybe now I'm a little bit older, you know, I'm 26. This idea that my mother really wants to tell me things through this film because she's not necessarily a very talkative person. So, because I don't know, it felt really important to her that I really did this um, constantly throughout my life. So I guess that, that she finds a sense of, um, spirituality or meaning mm. to life in this film that she really wants to communicate to me so it it becomes a little bit more than than just this film because of this ritual are you also finding that in the film or are you still trying to look for it in the film because you just said it's not meditative it just kind of throws things at you mm -hmm. are you getting a sense of spirituality of some kinds out of the film? Um, I think because the film, in my opinion, is made in a way where it leaves you with a lot more questions rather than answers, that's something I've always experienced for every single time that I watched the film. But last year, I attempted this thing. I, I had a book club, and then it was with like 15 mates of mine, and then 
we each had to, you know, choose a book every month. And then I had the I also had a Corona book club. (laughs) (laughs) But mine died because of me and because of 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) 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 Because we all chose really wonderful books and then it was my turn and I chose 2001. Because there's a book that was made co-currently when the film was produced together with um, Stanley Kubrick. And I had the plan to, you know, watch the film together with my mates and read the book and discuss it and sort of go through this journey of existentialism that my mother had sort of passed out for me. But then everybody hated the book so much that we never ended up meeting and that was kind of the end of my book club. (laughs) But I was then the only one who ended up actually finishing the book and I really enjoyed it. I think that Arthur C. Clarke's book, I believe he wrote the book shortly after the movie because the movie is... Or them with the film it was production, re- right? I think it was released right after the mm. release of the yeah. film. The main issue is that uh, I believe Kubrick also had with Clark is that, let me get a starting point here so we can discuss the movie and, it, and its creation. When Kubrick had made uh, Dr. Strangelove, and that was a huge critical and financial success, he sort of got a free pass to do something that he wanted to do. But he also wanted to move out out of the sort of confines of Hollywood. So he moved to to the UK and he felt that he might have more freedom as a filmmaker in Europe because around it's 68, right? So around the sixties, there's way more freedom to make films there than the studio system in America. Potentially a bad choice because 68, 69, 70 in American cinema is true. Yeah. Well, well, globally, that's (laughs) right. And I think around that time, he also met Arthur C. Clarke. And they had like these long debates about, well, <laughs> the big-ass existential questions. And Arthur and C. Clarke, just for context, he's a bona fide sci-fi author. Right, right? yeah. So uh, I believe that Kubrick wanted to base a movie, a science fiction movie, sort of more based in reality than what we would see in 77 or Star Wars or what was more like the sort of yeah the sort of almost adventure sci-fi of the The 50s yeah exactly um, like the Buck Rogers sort of thing like that so he made a screenplay which was mostly based on short stories that Clark had written so I believe the book as you as you said like came out in tandem or after the film Mm -hmm. which I believe Kubrick didn't like because there are more questions in the film and the book was starting to answer those questions, right? Because, yeah. well, you as the book club destroyer can now be <laughs> testament of what is in that book. Yes. So, yeah, we'll, um, we'll get to that probably. All right, I'm going to give both of you a challenge. Oh, shit. Who's able to describe the film the most succinctly mm. and mm. briefly? Because oh ever God, just now implying or kind of like suggesting that everybody already knows what 2001 is even yeah. about. Uh, Who can do it most efficiently and cover the basis? What the hell is 2001 Space Odyssey about? The horrible thing is that if I think about describing the movie, which I can then do maybe, but is that you start describing scenes which without seeing the film might not coherently make any sense as a narrative, right? This is the problem. Yeah. Okay, so the the film starts with images of space and then moves on to the dawn of man, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We call it that. So it's 15 minutes without any dialogue, probably even longer. I think 25 minutes. I looked it up. The funny thing is that if you look at how much dialogue is in the film, there's 88 minutes without any dialogue in this film. 
which, which is a lot. It's a lot. Um, mainstream film. Maybe. Yeah. And then we go into the, the ape scenes where there are apes which are... Are they bored? Who are very bored indeed, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. taking over. So yeah, the take monolith up, Take over appears. the ape part. Come on, it's what's happening. And a monolith is actually... A, I think it's the only consistent element throughout the film. And you could even discuss maybe throughout the history of universe as depicted in 2001 a space odyssey that gives a power to those that interact with the monolith which is yet to be understood right and in this case in the first chapter the monolith gives the apes the intelligence to use bones as a means of protection as a means of aggression survival of the fittest mm-hmm which takes us to the second chapter of the film, which is... Wait, what? no, wait, one thing. Between <laughs> those... <laughs> oh, yeah, you're forgetting the most important cut in film yeah, history. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 The most okay. important match cut in film history. We have to discuss the okay. most important match cut in film history. Give it to us, Tom. I'll make it really nice and short, right? So, Ape throws up bone. Bone cuts to spaceship. Well, yeah, the cut happens, and in the process, like thousands of years, you know, have passed with just like the snap of a fingers. It's uh, maybe one. It is. I mean, it's a cliche. It's a very much memed and kind of like riffed on uh, cut. But it's that and Lawrence of Arabia is, blowing out the match and then seeing the desert. It's a very powerful cinematic gesture that would like the tiniest 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 transition you can make thousands of years pass in a way that seems cohesive mm-hmm. and actually brings the story forward so it is you know it's as i asked in the beginning does it still hold up that still holds up Funny, yeah it does <laughs> i love the fact that the soviets who introduced uh, this uh, match cut called it intelligent montage just like the weirdest humble brag possible. This is intelligent montage. No, but I was thinking about this again as well, and this is like a great, great, great tangent. Only true precedent of this film in cinema at that point is Soviet cinema. Mm. It is mm. Eisenstein and Pudovkin and Dovchenko that are making those films in the 1920s and 30s that actually are on the same intellectual level and the only cool thing I think really about what Kubrick did at that moment or the most cool thing is that he brought that level of filmmaking to a mainstream general public because everybody and their neighbor has seen 2001 The Space Odyssey. You mentioned it as a cinephile film at the beginning but in a way it is so incredibly ubiquitous and mainstream and that's Pretty special mm-hmm. that it has that in bagage, that intellectual bagage. It is, but it, it is, but it's still just like everybody knows about. Yeah, this no, film, that's you know? that's true. That's true. It's become very much a part of sort of a popular culture, very much so. But I still feel that there's for people who have not seen this film, uh, there might be a, a sort of intellectual obstacle to traverse to. Get into this film. I don't I think it's agree. that mainstream. No, but agree. we'll get there in a bit because after a while, of course, there's kind of like space ennui and shoes, and then it becomes a bit more like a demanding film. But the beginning, I would say, is immediately captivating. And mm-hmm. 
the match card is a totally invigorating, like, inventive thing, and it's a work of beauty, and it's, like, one of the grandest things in film history. So, yeah, it's amazing. Yes. So, okay, we got, you know, we're in space now, you know? We're in space now. We're in a world that we may recognize, but we don't actually quite recognize it as the world that we know today. We are now in the year 2001. Or at least how Stanley Kubrick had envisioned 2001 to be, which is a place where man travels to the moon easily, which is where we are. And it feels a lot more funky and I would say fun than traveling to the moon probably is today as we um, are showcased a really interesting way of consuming food which is oh yeah <laughs> through the little straws little straws yeah um, he got that one wrong but he then he got so much right unfortunately yeah, yeah. because that was one of my favorite things to look forward to <laughs> sorry to interject but very interesting that he got the whole sort of because people are almost bored about the traveling they're like yeah. the guy you follow in the beginning who travels he's been doing this so many times it's like mm -hmm. you're just taking an aircraft yeah. And you can see, like, the, the entirety of space travel has been completely privatized. He flies there with a... And I like this. This is because it doesn't make sense. And it also shows you how 60s actually the future is. He flies there with a pan-American sort of spacecraft. Well, mm -hmm. as we all know, pan-American doesn't even exist anymore. But it's still sort of almost... Well, it actually shows you what's happening right now, right? Yeah, With I Bezos mean, and Branson going, yeah, totally. exactly. completely privatizing uh, spacecraft air travels to, well, whatever we're going to do in, um, in the yeah. near future. I think we'll get there later, but I think one of the great observations is that the only reason that we are going to those places anyway is capital, right? But that's like maybe for now for the plot besides the points, but I think that's re really succinct about the film as yeah. well. That mm -hmm. It's just only the financial gains, ultimately, that rivals to those things. And we all know through Dr. Strangelove that Kubrick was a very good observator of the Cold War era and was like the, basically the, the subconscious American imaginarium almost of what we envision the world to be. And it's kind of nice to see him project that to space as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're traveling. We're in space. Yeah. yeah, we're, we're in traveling space. in space. And we're traveling uh, towards the moon because um, what is later understood in um, the second episode is that the same monolith that we saw in the first chapter is also found under the ground of the moon. Boom. It's Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon. End Boom. of chapter The monolith. Two. Yes. Okay. Is Transformers <laughs> 3 the most Kubrickian Michael Bay film? Yuriko, so, can you please continue? <laughs> Otherwise, we're just gonna this MF here will now suddenly turn it into Fast and the Furious, the monolith experience. I'm gonna continue. Thank no you. worries. We have now very quickly actually arrived to the third, and I would also say the last chapter of the film, which is still in space, however, not uh, going towards the moon going towards Jupiter and why is that because it has been discovered that the monolith that we previously saw on the moon is in some way or another related connected communicating to Jupiter so there's a team of um, 
scientists. Bunch of guys. Bunch um, of white guys. Bunch of white guys doing what they do best, going to Jupiter and discovering what is up. Just like, how can we be away from our wives as long as possible? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> But, no, hold on. Wait, you call your kid, right? On, a, on their birthday. On, on their birthday. Yeah. Via video, Skyping, Zooming. Yeah. He was so he right got on that, that right. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later you get the iPads, which I really like. Yeah. yeah. Completely got the iPads, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that um, crazy, like shit hits the fan in chapter three because mm. a lot of things go wrong. It's, Only. I would say, um, a lot of people start to die. And it is also the chapter where we are introduced to another power that is, has become um, more potent than the power of mankind itself, which is the power of the machine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is where Hal and also the new uh, cinema space of Lab 111 comes uh, into play, which is, yeah, Hal. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was not concerned about the problems of hibernation, for he was the latest result in machine intelligence, the HAL 9000 computer, which can reproduce though some experts still prefer to use the word mimic, most of the activities of the human brain and with incalculably greater speed and reliability. We next spoke with the HAL 9000 computer, whom we learned one addresses as Hal. Good afternoon, Hal. How's everything going? Good afternoon, Mr. Amer. Everything is going extremely well. Well, let's discuss Hal because it may be One of the most interesting themes about the film, like I think how it treats artificial intelligence and yeah. how almost, I'll be very honest, like 2001 can be at times an incredibly sterile, austere film where totally. it feels like you cannot at all have any empathy with any human in this film. And then at some point when Hell is introduced, he slowly becomes the most to be emphasized with character of the film because he is in this chapter sort of trying to save himself and the mission he is on even though the astronauts have different plans i would think that in the opposition between how and the humans the humans also become more relatable mm -hmm. than itself mm -hmm. because how is the sentient computer on board of the spaceship that you know is kind of like as you see in many sci-fi films after 2001 it's kind of trying to put the mission in the right trajectory maybe but things go awry and how needs to be shut down and how will do anything in its capabilities to prevent that of happening because it's a sentient thing it has right. thoughts of its own and an instinct to save itself which is i guess one of the main themes of the film as well of course is the Survival but we said the survival of the, of the fittest. fittest. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's only in the face of how that man itself gets a more poignant function maybe as well, which is also to shut it down. And this clash also makes the people more relatable, I would say. Um, which is interesting that this conflict between the two gives you insight in both of those psyches almost. And it's only by virtue of how spare or how like economical information is being distributed to you that it's only in one of these kind of like big binary clashes that you're 
either with one or the other or with both at the same time. But as you say, the film can be quite, it can put you on a distance for a long time, mm-hmm. but then it suddenly really grabs you and pulls you in immediately in what the central dilemma of the film is. I think at the end, of course, which is very iconic, it propels you out of that as well and you're forced to only gaze and wonder and ask questions. The yet to be understood what you said earlier is I like that because many of the things you see you can you can accept even though you don't understand. But the central conflict of man versus machine is one that everybody immediately can grasp, right? And very much a theme in, I think, in Kubrick's entire work, the sort of struggle between man and science and technology and this this keeps popping up yeah even the unknowable it's kind of like even in yeah. the shining you know yeah the even, way maybe even more abstract yeah yeah the yeah. way that this like unfathomable evil can take hold of person in that film and can manifest itself in man you don't understand what jack nicholson in the shining is going through but you you relate to the terror that it instills You think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? When do you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor? As soon as possible. As soon as possible. Yeah, and there's there's this funny thing, of course, almost with how Kubrick treated his own material, which really helps this exactly what you just said, the sort of unknown. He was, of course, known as this almost reclusive genius that was making these films and not really describing what he was making these films for or giving any answers to the questions that he was posing because he thought it wasn't really relevant for him to tell you what the film was about yeah we as an audience need to see this and take these films in and then somebody else can make room 237 a documentary traversing all the weird conspiracy theories which can be put on on The Shining, for instance, yeah. mm-hmm. is it about a burial ground of uh, Native Americans that sort of take revenge on these people staying in the Overlook Hotel? Is it about the fact that everybody after 2001 thought, because it's the last movie made before before people actually went to the moon, and everybody after that thought that, well, Kubrick must have shot that material, right? That's yeah. We didn't really go to the moon. People only think that because he didn't give answers. He, there is this... I there, totally believed that when I was a teenager. Uh, that it's all a conspiracy, that we yeah, didn't yeah, really yeah. go to the moon. Yeah, I used to date a conspiracy theory boy. Oh, yeah, who, oh, yeah well, who, yeah, yeah. Who implanted oh, that yeah. idea in me. And I was already quite fragile when it came to, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey being meaning something else that I did not yet understand. And then I... Yeah, well, the funny thing is that one of the most beautiful things in The Shining is that when Danny Torrance is sitting on that beautiful carpet in the Overlook Hotel, there's this shot where he's wearing this little jumper that actually has a rocket saying, I I believe Apollo, which sort of every every conspiracy theorist is wet dream to see that like, oh, he's actually telling us right now that he filmed that material through this movie and like, oh my God, mind blown. But it's interesting because Kubrick, you know, he made some really great films in the early 60s as well. But his rise is like a major figure in, in cinema 
is happening in this time when there's also this prescient wave of pop culture dominance as this thing to study as an actual lens or means to grasp with the politics and the economic realities of everyday life. This is the time where everybody is starting to read Rolling Stone magazine and mm. all these various other platforms and where suddenly films seem so infused with meaning and Christian groups are saying that if you reverse a record of Led Zeppelin, you can hear <laughs> satanic yeah, messages yeah. in it. But it's just like everything just seems Paul so instilled dead. with meaning. This is, of course, also around the same time where Roland Barthes writes about the death of the author. And that's like this major turning point in modernism to postmodernism and structuralism to post-structuralism where everything that was once seemed intentional only from the perspective of the creator can suddenly also be transposed almost to the intention of the consumer that wants to read something mm. into it. But it's mostly because most of those, you could call all of those things, texts are so infused at least with the illusion of meaning or are just so... Um, all of these texts, they seem to be like filled to the brim with like things that allude to something that is bigger than the thing that they are only referencing. It's just, you could say everything yeah. is filled with subtext, maybe. But because that's, mm. everything was full of subtext. I think it's also because of that, that it somehow to me, it feels quite accidental that the hell element of the film is now the element that speaks to most people that exactly. watch the film because... Kubrick had no idea how the film would turn out and maybe in, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 now years after the film was made, we could have been in a total different crisis in, you know, relationship man and the moon or relationship like man and... Oh my God. For oh example. My God. Go on. <laughs> but also the, also the idea of the monolith being an entity that is able to give some sort of energy or a message that we are as or at least the the men in the film don't understand as you know some kind of spiritual power or god you could potentially say is something that supposedly or apparently we are now not really in a need to understand but that's that. the cool thing because i would say that one of the things that for me is the least interesting part of the film is actually the hell part uh, yeah. And the most captivating thing is everything that you don't really understand. Like the monolith, you could also say that it's kind of like an information or meaning black hole. It just can suck up everything and it can be all of those things. But all of the things that you will throw against it, it will just evaporate. It, mm. will, it won't stick because it's there for for whatever reason. And those reasons don't even really matter because... It just has such a powerful uh, position within the film. It just stands so firm, but it's impossible to make a read of it that will be cohesive. And then the end of the film that we didn't discuss yet, but the post how post also the, how do you even call it? The Stargate going like into the cosmos, just like basically he gets into, let's say, the fringes of, the material that space is made of, and then also tries to depict the other side of that, what will end up with man when it's like literally at the other side of whatever jump gate or wormhole or, or whatever it is, is. And of course that is 
mind-blowing and way too far for us to comprehend in a sense, but therefore also more interesting for me at this moment because the Halfane is now really, it sits very comfortable at where we are now in our relationship with technology, whereas everything else is just too secure. We're not there yet, or, well... The funny thing, of course, is that no single other, like, big director that managed to make a film for a really big audience has managed to trump that in a way. You know, Interstellar Mm. would be a good point of comparison where Christopher Nolan works with Kipling, who's also a big uh, science, like, like really big space author, intellectual, and basically the whole point of the film is, you know, space is kind of crazy, but, you know, love is very yeah. universal, yeah. and it, it's yeah. the tissue that binds us all together, which is a sentiment that I actually really love, and I love Interstellar a lot. But I really like that... Kiriko and I don't like... Uh, I know. We're, we're yeah, on the... Bro. We show no to Nolan. Well, not to all Nolan. I really like that 2001 just gives you none of that and just makes you, like, it puts you at loss of all of those kind of, like, uniform, unifying grand themes. It just leaves you hanging in yeah. space. Literally. I realized yesterday when I was rewatching it that the, the part where he goes into the wormhole, you know, the colorful bit, is the closest cinematic depiction of what a DMT trip looks like yeah it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because when it came out in 68 it wasn't a huge success and it only became a huge success because there were a lot of cinemas and this i find very inspiring who kept sort of screening it because there were young people coming to the cinema sort of stoned out of their gourd just to watch that stargate uh, thing because everybody loved seeing that on drugs and actually, while I was setting up the podcast, I was talking to one of our uh, one of our restaurant managers, and he said, "Like, oh yeah, I remember seeing 2001. That was one of my first LSD trips." Poor guy. Yeah, that's tough. And he said, "Like, I still thought it was pretty boring." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is like this is a total tangent. But one of the like big lies that they tell you that. It is fun to trip at films, whereas often it is not. Yeah. I once had like a double, like simultaneous double projection screening of the Holy Mountain in this <laughs> venue, <laughs> in this venue in Amsterdam, and they gave everybody complete strangers of each other, um, like magic chocolate, and everybody was just tripping during oh that my film. Lord. And there was also a piano in the room, and a guy was just banning the <laughs> piano. So there was this really dissonant soundtrack. And I didn't understand where the piano thing was coming from and the double projection wasn't properly like projected. So it was like one second off. So it was like really intense and overstimulating and confusing. And also that film doesn't need that, you know. Maybe it's envisioned by somebody while being very high or stoned. But then to also consume it <clears throat> in the same state, I would say is actually one of the worst ideas you could have. But I, I, you know, everybody should maybe have that experience and then be very disappointed with it. Well, I, I would also say that, you know, Space Odyssey, maybe just don't watch it while you're on the LSD. Is this the end of our adventure? Nothing has an end. We came in search of the secret of immortality to be like God. And here we are. 
mortals, more human than ever. If we have not obtained immortality, at least we have obtained reality. We began in a fairy tale, and we came to life. But is this life reality? No. It is a film. Zumba camera. Now, it's always funny, like, if you look at, um, here comes my favorite word ever, lists of most psychedelic movies ever. You got, like, mm. The Holy Mountain, and you got, yeah. like, 2001, and you know, <laughs> I wanted to say Enter the Void, but that might be, like, the movie to watch if you don't ever want to do another DMT trip of, yeah. or whatever in your life again. I never really feel that those are the films that you should be watching when doing stuff of like that. Of course not. No. No, but it's funny that you say that, Kiko, about the feeling of a DMT trip because, like, they are able to capture that tunneling, kind of, like, kaleidoscopic, propulsive, forward trajectory that you can have when you have a DMT trip, which is where you also... It invites you to want to control that as well and kind of... and. The good thing about this film or the horrific thing about this scene is that he's not able to do that. So you're like with the DMT trip, you kind of want to see your body or your mind as a controller and you want to swim in your own like trip almost. Mm -hmm. Whereas he's just subjected to the most relentless visuals and speeds that can be thrown at him and he's just propelled through it and it's horrific and he's stuck course. in frames yeah that's also what makes it very yeah, sort yeah. of so it's very so awful it's very yeah. painful because yeah. he's yeah. enduring the thing and it's uh that's yeah i don't know it's so it's so good and they actually did it by just in being in a car and driving through new york downtown and Times Square and just capturing all the crazy lights, right? It's kind of like... This might be a good moment to uh, to mention Douglas Trumbull yeah. because he recently died yeah. and he is, of course, this. I think this is, is was his first real sort of feat as a special effects artist making this, this Stargate sequence. He was inspired by what's called, I believe, streak photography, which is like these beams of light when you, yeah. mm. when you fuck with... Um, What's the it called? Yeah, settings. with the exposure, you get like these long streaks of light, and the entire sequence is sort of made out of that. And then, of course, Trumbull became famous for doing the special effects for Blade Runner and yeah. for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and uh, also directing uh, what might be the cutest eco sci fi film ever made, Silent Running. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Just want to put his name out there because he's such a, a brilliant man. It touches upon this thing that. Like the space imaginarium around this time is highly like loaded with political meaning as well, right? This is the like peak space race, and of course, um, Doctor Strangelove really touches upon mm -hmm. a part of that, which is more the nuclear weapons race. But this is, of course, the umbrella thing that's over that. Even is like this man trying to assert dominance in space as well. Mm -hmm. Often when you see space depicted in films, it's either as a foreign entity that will crash onto Earth, which is the 1950s sci-fi style almost, you know, you got your flying saucers coming in, or it is, you know, this triumphant, like, man claiming space and propelling themselves into space and 
a certain order, like you said, the final frontier, a certain order on space, like it's kind of like a vertical Western almost. Whereas here it is man being totally at loss in every sense of the word at what they are able to do there mm -hmm. and what it is that they will able to be achieve. And the monolith is a good symbol of that. But then this particular segment where one of our protagonists just gets fucking <laughs> launched into the ether and we don't even know where he's going to end up and where he's going to end up is absolutely fascinating as well but like it excels everything that we have maybe that we maybe thought about at that point of what space could bring us so so let's go where he ends up there is an interview where mm. Kubrick actually does discuss this sequence it's very cute there's a Japanese guy who calls him up and Kubrick's on the phone. It's the only moment that he actually tells the story about what they were showing in the end scene. Mm. I won't go into it. Maybe we can, but then it's a spoiler thing for Kubrick's own opinion on the film because it's not interesting at all because you need to experience it yourself, I think. But So what Kubrick said is he ends up in a terribly designed Baroque room, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bad sort of proxy of what a Baroque room should be. Do whatever you like with that thought. But he's, he's there. It's Delilah sitting, Delia, dear Delia. The, that actor has the weirdest name ever. Uh, he's still, by the way, he's 85, looks exactly like <laughs> the old man makeup that he has there, which <laughs> oh, is does. so bizarre. That's yeah. the Kubrick magic, you know? Uh, yeah, he yeah, yeah. He, a got it, he got it perfectly <laughs> right. <laughs> but he ends up there, so he's in his gown walking through the room, but there's also the spot there that he, that he was flying in. And time and space seem to sort of fluctuate constantly there. He's old, a bit younger, and we, of course, end up with the monolith just standing there and him reaching out to it and him becoming the astral child. I want to bring, in, I want to bring back the book. Yeah. Because, as I said earlier, the book... I, I wouldn't recommend the book because it does indeed give a lot of answers to the things that were questions to me previously, and I, I preferred it the way they, they were questions before. However, the introduction of the book, I, I'm just going to read it and then you can mm -hmm. yourself, is the foreword of the book. By? By uh, C. Clark. Okay. Behind every man, now alive, stand 30 ghosts. For that is the ratio by which the dead outnumber the living. Since the dawn of time, roughly a hundred billion human beings have walked the planet Earth. Now this is an interesting number, for by a curious coincidence, there are approximately a hundred billion stars in our local universe, the Milky Way. So for every man who has ever lived in this universe, there shines a star. But every one of those stars is a sun, often far more brilliant and glorious than the small nearby star that we call the sun. And many, perhaps most, of those alien suns have planets circling them. So almost certainly there is enough land in the sky to give every member of the human species back to the first ape man his own private world-sized heaven or hell. 
stunning, no? Yeah, yeah I Martha. fucking love that, man. That's some like, like high school stoner shit. But it's really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, fucking yeah. good, though. Yeah, was, he was, it's like, what has he been smoking? Yeah, if you would have read me this when I was seventeen, I was like, holy shit, man, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah she's yeah. still really crazy, man. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. It's really nice, and I think it's and also, also kind of sweet. And it's like but the, also really dark. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know. But the private hell and heaven thing is kind of nice because like where the film ends up, you know, taking you is kind of maybe that. Like, is this kind of like a heaven or hell or an in-between? It's at least a, a place where you can feel the duration of time and you get the sense that there needs to be a lot of passing of time to leave there, you know? It seems like an impermanent, kind of awful place to be at. At least that's how I kind of register it. Which might also be all of the other things in between, actually. You know, that spaceship is not necessarily nice. No, I don't think so, no. So maybe it's just, like, human beings constantly trying to <laughs> create and recreate their own heavens and hells or something, or manifest those in a plethora of locations. But this is nice and kind of doesn't even flesh out any of the things yet, but still gives you a grand scale of things. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. How do you guys think that this film influenced cinema and sci-fi afterwards well you know the funny thing of course is that it's only a couple of years later seven ish that you of course get star wars and many of the grand questions of space and beyond and the uncertainties that they contain and the, the hidden knowledge gets substituted for something very cohesive, something very that's instantly pleasing, a grand story as well, but one that gives you most, if not all, of the answers that you are looking for in space. Like, you know, um, man really manifesting itself in space through Skywalker and the Force and whatnot, you know, it's a different thing to unpack. But that really, I think, put a more permanent mark on cinema and sci fi in the sense that. It's become a more economically viable model to make films that are more like Star Wars than films that are more like 2001. So I feel like 2001 is a strange film in the sense that it doesn't really have that many films that try to match it or rival it or kind of try to summon that film necessarily. However, every film that you will see that takes space seriously can't go it can't bypass 2001 it's just a film that you can't really get around i think after the renaissance in painting there's this crossroads where paintings go two ways so this is the exact same thing that happens with sci-fi i believe with 2001 and it's the rolling stones beatles question do you like the rolling stones or do you like the beatles this is really a tangent i know um, this is what happens with, do you like Star Trek or do you like Star Wars? Yeah. Do you like science fiction that goes places and asks you questions? Yeah, which is speculative and inquisitive. Which Exactly, which is very much in Star Trek. And even Star Trek itself has now, through the years, become... Star Wars. Star Wars Star again. If you look Star at Trek, like yeah, how the they are now Abrams. fucking up the... Exactly, like J.J. Yeah. Abrams, but now also with the new Star Trek Picard series, they're completely it's become more the 
entertainment thing that Star Wars always really was. Like Lucas didn't make any sort of pretension on what he was doing. He was making those Buck Rogers, uh, uh, yeah, sci-fi, yeah, serial stuff like that. But it splits up like that, and I think that there's this. what happens is that you on one track you got the very much entertainment, fun, space is the place, you can do whatever you want, uh, and it's um it's more like an there's the adventure of space, and then in the other side you have high life and uh more sort of contemplative asking the questions of what does it mean when you look up at the sky, what does that say about you as a human being? I can end with maybe also then one final, final question is, you know, this 2001 absolute classic, Banner, Stone stone Cold classic. However, is it your favorite, Kubrick? Absolutely not. Um, No, no, I don't think so. So which one is? Ice White Shot. (laughs) Same. Really? Yeah. Um, I just like Tom Cruise a lot. I like the movie (laughs) because it ends with the word fuck. No, it's, that's... (laughs) That's I no, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't fuck with Tom Cruise. But um so <laughs> not eyes wide shut for Neither me. Neither does he with you, I heard. <laughs> uh, so Um I would say uh Doctor Strange Love, but I also really like Lolita. Mm. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Kubrick, pretty cool guy. <laughs> I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. The voice that you hear there... For me, like it feels like the, the perfect voice that he could have. But there's this wonderful uh, interview with Pierre Dalia. He's he's asked like, how how was it? How was that voice on set? Like, did you did you actually act somebody like reading those lines? And he said like during production, Kubrick was constantly looking for the right voice, but he couldn't find the right guy. So he asked his assistant director to do like read the lines to him but his assistant director like sounded exactly like michael kane so it was a open the pop by doors hell like <laughs> on set <laughs> i'm afraid i cannot do that dave <laughs> not a lot of people know <laughs> not that. a lot of people know that <laughs> yeah. uh, i'm afraid dave and uh <laughs> <laughs> and then like during post-production he found like the correct guy who was actually with like douglas rain i believe who did the voice who will now close off this podcast by saying this conversation can serve no purpose anymore thanks for listening to celebrating cinema as you heard there are still delays to the new screening room but make sure to follow us on social media at lab 111 to find out when we'll be announcing our celebrating cinema screening of 2001 A Space Odyssey. The next episode we'll be celebrating Ennio Morricone and how his work shaped sound in cinema. Stay tuned for a bonus episode, an interview with director Hannah Burkle, who discusses her latest film Hatching with Hugh Cole. 
You will find all show notes to this episode on our website, celebratingcinema.com, and you can always write in at celebratingcinema at lab111.com. This was a Lab 111 production produced by myself, Elliot Bloom, music from Hugo and Mazal, and artwork from Studio FFF. Thanks very much for listening, and until next time. Thank you.